Hey everyone, I'm Joe Chicarone, and this is Built Not Born, episode number 80. Today's guest is Steve Maxwell. Steve Maxwell is a pioneer in both the fitness industry and Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Steve is recognized as one of the most creative strength and conditioning coaches on the planet. Steve opened the very first Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu Academy on the East Coast. He is the very first American black belt under Helson Gracie, the son of Grandmaster Elio Gracie. Steve has worked with various government agencies working self-defense, including the DEA, Secret Service, and FBI. Steve has been featured in books and magazines like Men's Health, Muscle Media, the Russian Kettlebell Challenge, just to name a few. Steve and I have a far-ranging discussion. We talk about the origins of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu in America, what it was like having the very first Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu Academy maxercise on the East Coast. We also discuss Steve's nomadic lifestyle. For a number of years, Steve lived on the road. He traveled the globe, no house, no possessions, just doing kettlebell and BJJ seminars around the world. Steve shares tips on how to stay healthy and fit, how to have longevity on the mat. It's a fun conversation with a fascinating person who's been on the cutting edge of both fitness and Brazilian jiu-jitsu for so many years. So excited to bring this conversation to you. Steve was my very first Brazilian jiu-jitsu instructor. I walked into Maxercise back in the day and realized Steve and Brazilian jiu-jitsu were the real deal. So... I hope you enjoy. If you like what you hear, please hit that follow button. We have a bunch of cool interviews like this one to come. Enjoy my conversation with Steve Maxwell. And remember, life is built, not born. Steve Maxwell, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you very much, Joe. Appreciate you having me on. Oh, dude, it's so great to see you again. Steve. For our listeners who may not be familiar with you and your work, who are you and what do you do? Well, I've been training since 1964, Joe. I started as a young boy in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, in the basement of my father's house. I was basically a small kid and one of the younger kids in the community. And my father noticed I was getting pushed around by a lot of the older boys. So he decided he was gonna toughen me up. He was an old World War II vet. He was the Pacific Fleet Bantamweight Boxing Champion during World War II. Wow. They used to get the naval ships together and anchor and set up fights on aircraft carriers right out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean and have these fights. Damn. Like, like we, we, you know, we used to call them smokers, you know. <laughs> and he was pretty handy with his fist. He was a, a just a little guy, grew up as a West Virginia farm boy. When he grew up, they didn't even have electricity, man. So he was that breed, the old World War II tough breed. They don't make them like that anymore. So he started teaching my brother and I boxing, but I didn't like it. I just wasn't a boxer. And, uh, I used to get mad and throw the gloves off and tackle my brother down when he got the best of me. <laughs> he says, well, you're no boxer, you're a wrestler. So he had me go out for the wrestling team, bought me a barbell set from York. York Barbell Company was the mecca of strength training mm-hmm. back in the day. Bob Hoffman, John Grimmick, the whole York gang. 
And uh, he'd take me, uh, Carlisle was close to New York. He'd take me down there. I watched the guys lift on um, Saturdays when my dad was off. And we'd watch these very famous Olympic lifters, bodybuilders training. That was my start. And I wrestled all through high school. <clears throat> I knew from a very young age I wanted to be in the physical training business. So I decided to major in physical education. So I went to Westchester State College. Now it's a university. But I wrestled four years NCAA Division One program. Uh, had an 18-2-1 record my senior year. Didn't do so well in the postseason tournaments, though. I, I, we'll get to that later. But uh, I had a tendency to overtrain. Uh, by the end of the season, I started to burn out. And then coached wrestling in high school for a couple of years. That was my start. And then I decided I really didn't like teaching kids. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I I liked adults. If they asked, say someone asked, say the neural version of Steve Maxwell, what he wanted to be when he grew up, what would he have said? It was the same thing. I knew when I was 12. I wanted to be in the physical training business. And the way I came to jiu-jitsu was after I graduated from college, I wrestled a little bit here and there at different colleges and schools. That's a young man's sport. And most wrestling practices are right in the middle of the working day for a working man. So what are you going to do, you know? Yep. I was looking for something to face wrestling. So we were talking about uh, Kempo Karate. Yeah. So I, I was working at the Society Hill Club. That's where I met the Michael Reese brothers. Oh, yeah, sure. Okay. And they were Don't just they, yeah, Well, they were little boys. Basically, Ricky was a baby, a toddler, and Phil was a really tiny little tot. And uh, their mom worked part-time for me because I got a job as a fitness director at the old Society Oak Club. Mm-hmm. And I was looking for something to replace my precious wrestling. And uh, I found Tom Upton and yeah. the Kempo Roddy right down there in Old City. And I started taking private lessons from Tom. And uh, I, I kind of liked Kempo. But once again, I wasn't a karate man. I was a natural-born rapper. And I went and took a seminar from the Gracie Brothers, the very first one in 1989 on the East Coast. How did you hear about them? And then how did you decide to go to that seminar in Jersey? What led you to that? There was a guy, I forget his name, Jeremy something or other, that had a video shot. And he was very much into fit. And it was like a how to do it video store. So I went and I was looking at his videos on exercise and health and fitness he had a martial arts section so this is your old eight track yeah and i was saying the gracie in action videos that had been made by holy and gracie mm-hmm. you can still see those old videos on youtube somewhere and it was real fights like real challenge fights and i took it home and i was blown away i said wow this looks a lot like wrestling mm-hmm. look at these yeah. guys they're clenching they're taking down they're putting chokeholds in these guys. Wow, that was something I'd like to learn. Then had a friend of mine that was really into martial arts, and he called me up all excited about the Gracie's coming. And I said, yeah, man, let's go. That was well done of you. It was very much into Muay Thai. Encouraged me to go with him. And I was blown away by that seminar. It was Hoist, Gracie, Hoyle and Gracie, and Hoyle. Wow. And I couldn't believe that those skinny guys could just pretzelize me like they did. I'm yep. thinking I was a very good wrestler, and I was still pretty strong. I was still like in my 30s, 
And uh, I thought I was going to handle these guys. And nope. <laughs> <laughs> what do you remember about the first time you got on the mat with him? What do you remember? Just how is he doing this to me? You know, I mean, how is he making this work so easy? But to make a long story short, I go back to Tom Updegrove and tell him about the seminar. Yeah. And Tom saying, nah, that's bullshit. <laughs> Those guys are fake. And then I kind of persisted a little bit. He said, well, try some of that stuff on me. And I'm like, oh, shit. Because, you know, I was used to sparring with Tom, and he, he would tune me up. That guy was an amazing kickboxer. Man. Yeah, he's good. And he was really good. But he wasn't a grappler. So I squared up with him. And he told me, I can do whatever you want to do. And I took him down 10 times in a row and choked him out. 10 times in a row. With the stuff he you learned me. from the Gracies. Like Just the... for one seminar plus my college wrestling. Wow. That's how good it worked against a fifth-degree black belt in Kemper. Which basically taught me that, look, if a guy doesn't know grappling and he gets into a clinch, he's in trouble. Mm -hmm. And a guy that doesn't know grappling when he's on the floor, he's in even bigger trouble. Now, I'm not saying that you shouldn't learn striking. I think it's good to know how to punch and kick and certainly how to block punches and kick. But like Jocko Wilnick said, yeah. uh, whether you listen to Jocko oh, or yeah. Absolutely. Jocko says, look, you don't need to know how to do Muay Thai or boxing or karate to beat a boxer or a karate man. All you need to do is run or keep your distance. Running as in staying out of range or literally running away. The fight for a jujitsu man starts when we hit the clinch. Yeah. Once you're clinched up, the fight starts. And not that you want to go to the ground in a self-defense situation. I, I don't, not out in the street, but I can certainly be comfortable on the ground, even on concrete. I practice in concrete. Even now, I still do forward rolls, backward rolls on macadam concrete. Masks give you a false sense of security. You need to learn how to be comfortable lying on cement and concrete, asphalt, you know, hardwood floors, whatever. I do that. I actually do rolls and moves and calisthenics and things like that. But anyway, Tom was amazed that I was able to, after one seminar, handle him. And to his credit, he went and got himself a blue belt. And he and I hosted the very first Gracie seminar in Philadelphia. Very first one. Tell us about that. Uh, he, he had moved Marshall Posture from Old City to another location. I think it was on what was it, Chestnut Street. Okay. He moved it over a, a couple of blocks. Anyway, in his new dojo, we hosted the first Gracie seminar together. Who was there? Who taught the Horian, Horian and Hoyce. Horian and Hoyce. Well, what, what, what year is that about? Oh, boy. Phil would know, because Phil was there. It had to be phew, probably 90. 1990. Wow. So how did it go from taking a class to attending their seminar, then Max or Size? Tell us how that came about. Well, Society Hill Club, the owner, was having some financial difficulties. Okay. Uh, he got involved with Jefferson Hospital and tried to create a wellness program out of what basically was like a country club in the city. Yeah. And the marriage did not work. They tried to medicalize the exercise program, and the people just didn't like it. They were running into a lot of problems. I'm not sure exactly what was going on behind the scenes, but all I know is one day the sheriff came in and told everyone to leave the building that they were foreclosing on the mortgage and shutting the place down. 
because the guy was in arrears on his mortgage payment. So they put locks in the door. And that was my whole living at the time. Um, I had had been collecting hammer strength equipment and exercise equipment and putting it in my little Philadelphia row house for years. And it's really funny because uh, my, my wife at the time used to chide me like, what are you doing buying all this exercise equipment? You have a whole gym. I said, you never know. You never know. I said, I just want to be ready for in case something would happen there at the club. I kind of knew it. And I thought that something was going on. Maybe you remember the Spains, Bernie Spain, Spain's Garden Gift. He had rental space on Chestnut Street that was unrentable. It was in the old building that used to be a textile manufacturing building. And this mm-hmm. building was old, late 1800s, late, late 1800s. So he offered me a space in there when the Society Hill Club closed down. And I took all my hammer strength equipment, barbells, dumbbells, stuff like that, over and carried them up piece by piece up a steep flight of stairs to the second floor of 707 Chestnut Street. Yeah. an old warehouse. And I had plenty of space. There was two more floors above me, very crude warehouse space. And I ended up putting mats in there. And I had the first jujitsu academy on the Eastern Seaboard. Before Henzo Gracie, before Marcelo Garcia, before any of the guys that you hear about now, there was me. That is wild. So what year is this? What year did you open up Maxwell's house? 90. 90. 1990. Wow. And then you start there. So I remember, quick story. This is fast forward to maybe 98. I took karate for like 12 years by that time and thought, I was, I'm a little dude, but I thought it was kind of tough. And I kept seeing Hori and Gracie in Black Belt Magazine, which I used to get with the Gracie Challenge. And there was like 20 hours of Gracie Jiu-Jitsu beach stand-up. And I'm like, bullshit. No way. No way. Right? And then, I, yeah, and then I, I'm in, living in the city at the time. And I'm like, wow, there's a school at 7th and Chestnut Street. I want to go check it out. And I had a friend that checked it out. He goes, these guys are legit. I'm like, no way. So I go down on a Saturday. They said beginner's class, like Saturday morning. I come up. I go up that steep staircase. See all the weights. Then you go up the other staircase, right, the, to the top floor, and it's yeah. just you, right? And then I'm like, hey, just checking it out. And you're like, I told you, I, I think I've said I train a little bit. And you go, all right, what would you do here? And you put me in a headlock. And if you didn't let go, I'd still be there. Like I had no answer, like absolutely zero. Like just total, my confidence just left instantly. Then you go do that to me. Then you showed me the move and just like exploded out of it. And I'm like, where do I sign up? I'm in. You're like, that's jujitsu. And I'm like, I'm in. And I joined, I was probably there like 98, 99, 2000. And man, just brief memories, a couple of memories that pop in my head. Remember one, just it's the first time, like 12 years of karate. I never worried about having my medical card with me. Uh, when I went to train, <laughs> when I go to exercise, I go, you know what? Let me make sure I got my medical card just in case I got to walk up to Jefferson two blocks up the road. Because there are some killers there. Like you had, from what I remember, you had Phil, you had Ricardo, Miglarice, you had, uh, remember Marco Peraza, Tim Carpenter, Jared Werner, little, little Tony was there, Fireman Joe. And it's just so many killers there. And it just blew me away what you guys were doing. Remember the uh, remember the Dr. Henri Apaku? Yeah, absolutely. He was working on, his, uh, he was a resident at Jefferson Hospital. Yep. The incredibly strong guy with yeah, a bald Kelly, head. 
Absolutely. There's, there's a bunch of killers, like a pit in my stomach every time. I remember like Anahi Baca would be at the front desk and she'd check your name off. And you call a class up, you go upstairs. And I, I like almost bless myself going up the stairs. <laughs> oh my gosh, why am I doing this? But it was so cool. Like you learn stuff that just like blew you away. And I remember like taking a class where like Kaiki came, um, Matt Fury. I just remember these these guys who float in there and I'm like, it's just incredible stuff. And uh Really, really cool, man. It was, it was, and you said that combat conditioning. Do you remember that? You said throw the combat. You said those combat conditioning yeah. classes. Basically, body weight exercise. It was based on the on the conditioning program of Carl Gotch, who was a turn of the century professional wrestler back when wrestling was yeah legit. Yep. And uh, he, he was like, he did that catch wrestling. He had a, a program based on Indian Christie wrestling. Okay. Christy wrestling's huge in India. That's where the Hindu push-ups, Hindu squats, and all this stuff come in. And Fury took it and marketed it as combat condition. Okay. Well, I remember like having nothing left after those classes. Like, like you would do it. We would do like a. There'd be like a jujitsu class, and then like combat conditioning would be after the jujitsu class, and then afterwards, like you had nothing left. Like absolutely, like you had trouble walking down the stairs. Like it was, you're just totally spent. How about what was it like being the only school on the East Coast? I'm sure people came in to challenge. What were the challenge matches like? How frequently would somebody come in to maxercise wanting to challenge somebody? Pretty often. I would say in the beginning, like once a week. Really? Uh, yeah. yeah, it was not uncommon. We even had another type of jiu-jitsu. It was like the Japanese-style jiu-jitsu. Mm-hmm. And we would always politely explain to people, wait, we're just students. I got my blue belt in about six months because of my college wrestling pedigree. Mm-hmm. Yep. And then I probably made purple belt in about a year and a half, I think. Mm-hmm. So that's pretty quick. But then, of course, I stayed there. You know, I reached the level of my incompetence, and <laughs> uh, my purple belt was almost white by the time I finally got my brown belt. But I remember you got your brown belt. You went to tell me if I'm wrong. I was. I remember showing up at a class after a weekend passed. You went to the Pan Ams in Florida, and you won them, right? Yeah. Didn't they? Didn't they? Didn't yeah. the Hoist and Horian give you the the brown belt in the hotel room? Didn't they give it to you down they there? Did. They came. Yep, I went down there with Anahi and and my ex wife and myself. We all went down together to compete in the Pan Ams. Pretty exciting. And then I came back with the brown belt. But yeah, we would politely explain to people, "Look, man, we're just students. We're not black belts. Our name isn't Gracie. We're just learning." But hey, we'll accommodate your challenge. And I don't know whether you remember, but I, I had a, one of those old desk cameras, you know, they, they were so big in those days. I put it on a tripod, I put a tape in there, and we would always video it. So there would be absolutely no question about what went on. And we would videotape all those fights. Phil still has a bunch of those videos, Phil and Ricky. And we would just keep that camera up there full time. I mean, I just left it out. We get so many people coming in that wanted to get it on. And in all that time, none of us ever took any really bad damage. Uh, you know, we got clipped a couple of times, you know, guys get lucky. But no one ever got knocked out. None of us ever got beat up. Uh, we always ended up submitting whoever came in. Wow. And... As I started getting older, I kind of got tired of it. I mean, as I hit my 40s, I just didn't feel like risking, mm-hmm. you know, my health anymore. And I started getting a little wiser. So I started having the young guys take up some of those challenges. Bill, Ricky, 
Jared Weiner, you know, Fireman Joe, they would all step up. Henri, if we got a huge guy, like a really big guy, I'd call him up. He'd, he'd come running over from the hospital <laughs> in his surgical uh, scrubs. You should have started looking at these guys' faces when he would take off this top. This guy was massively built, man, like a bodybuilder. A guy's face would drop. The, the, so, uh, yeah, we basically the formula worked pretty well. Keep your distance. Close the gap. Take the fight to the ground. Get a combat superior position. Usually mound or the guy would make the mistake of turning the back and you put the choke with the mm -hmm. hooks. Every now and again, you get a pretty tough guy, like a wrestler or a player that had grappling, and you might get put in your back, but no one had an answer for the guard. The it's guard so was, yeah, it was so foreign, you know, to guys. For me, too, when I first started, I, I couldn't figure out, like, what the hell? Yeah. You know? And, and if you listen to that, I think it might be a Superfoot Wallace, Bill Wallace, back in like the UFC, Hoist had someone in the guard and they're like, oh, he's getting killed. They had no idea. Like he's setting up a triangle and they had no idea what he was doing. The horse is in trouble. Next thing you know, the other person's tapping from a triangle. Fighting off your back was so far in back then. Kathy Long knew a little bit. I actually worked with her at one of the seminars there that Orion used to throw before the UFC. And he'd have a bunch of guys there assisting as instructors. Yeah. And I remember working with Kathy Long. She was one of those commentators, and uh, she got it. Wow. Kathy, Kathy understood. When did you get your black belt? The very end of 1999. I'm listed, I think, on Wikipedia as 2000, but it was like late 99, I think November, I believe. Who gave it to you? Yeah, yeah. I, there, there had been a bunch of... Uh, the Gracie brothers started out all together as one big happy family, and uh, you know, they're all alpha males. They all want to do their own thing. So they started splitting off and doing their own thing. Boiler and went back to Brazil for a while before he came back to California. Hoy and Hoist kept the Gracie Academy going there for a while. Um, Helson was in Hawaii the whole time. And, uh, but he's, he started coming to Maxercise. He formed like an alliance with Horian for a while. And I liked Helson. He was quite a character. A little controversial, <laughs> but I liked him, and um, I I trained with him for quite a few years, and then uh, kind of pressed him a little bit on getting my black belt. So he told me I had to come out to Hawaii and stay with him. So I stayed with him for a month, training as a brown belt, teaching classes, and then he put me through an extensive test. I mean. It was like 160 techniques that I had to demonstrate with three alternating attackers. He would whisper the attack. I'd stand in the middle of the floor. Guys would come out and attack me, and I had to successfully negotiate and defend the attack. That's That was my black belt test. Is that out that in was in, I was in Honolulu, and I got my black belt right after that. I was Helsing Gracie's first American black belt. That is cool. Wow. So you bring it back to Maxercise. So what point did you move on from Maxercise? Did you have that nomadic lifestyle? Yeah, well, I um, our building got condemned. The city condemned 707 Chester Street. It was very old. It was crumbling. There was uh, a lot of problems with the structure. And they basically condemned it. So the owner had a choice, either raise the building and rebuild or fix the building. 
So he decided to fix it. So we had to move all this stuff out. Man, we had been in there for the better part of two decades, had to move all this crap out. I mean, it was an enormous undertaking. All our machines and all the things, the mats, everything. It was nightmarish. And we got a temporary spot over on Sanson Street and George Row on the second floor. And it was like tiny compared to like Maxercise. And we temporarily set up shop while they were doing these building renovations. And man, I'm telling you, the trauma to our business, we lost so much money, you know, with this loss, a lot of customers. The trauma on my personal life with mm-hmm. my now ex-wife, D.C. Maxwell, very, very hard in my marriage. The stress was unimaginable. You know, we had bills to pay. And, you know, it was just really hard taking all that stuff out. And then the renovations took way longer than, you know, how that worked. And uh, it broke our marriage, basically. And uh, my ex-wife basically wanted to split. There had been a lot of stuff going on. And uh, I got an offer from Dave Bell, who wanted me to be his personal trainer out in Scottsdale, Arizona. And I had this fantasy about, like, living in an RV, you know, doing the RV lifestyle. It's pretty popular. There's a lot of people that, you know, there, there was even a movie made about uh, people that live in their camper vans full time. It was just always something that I thought I don't like. So uh, I left Philadelphia, went out to Arizona to work with Dave Bell and his brother. And uh, part of the deal was he got me this camper van. He bought it for me. Now he owned it, but he was letting me use it. And then later I bought it off him. And I continued to live in that band for about three and a half years. And just, you know, driving around the country, doing seminars. I actually went and I worked at a corporate fitness center called Genentech, Club Genentech, uh, near San Francisco for a while. And then I started getting calls to go and travel, do seminars and so forth. And uh, I had a lot of irons and different fires, you know. I kind of got into the whole kettlebell club bell thing and became known for kettlebells did you bring kettlebells to the united states no uh a russian immigrant he actually wasn't russian he was lithuanian his name is pavel sotsoli he was the one that first brought this training system i was the first guy to basically be one of the certified instructors okay and get the ball rolling and filling okay I brought kettlebells pretty much to the East Coast and Philadelphia and really got into it for a while. But uh, it's not a very good way to train, by the way. I, I understand. I you, did you walk away? I walked away from that. It's very hard on your body. A lot of microtrauma, a lot of microtrauma, a lot of subacute injuries. Uh, it's not a sustainable way to train into old age. Everyone wants to get big, strong, fast. Everyone forgets about safety and wear and tear on the joints. And as you know, you know, as you're getting older, Wear and tear is a very real thing. A lot of people end up with a lot of osteoarthritis, joint stiffness pain. And by the time they're in the late 50s, 60s, they are incapacitated. And you don't see too many guys over 60 rolling at all. No way, man. Most guys can't. Hip replacement surgery is a, a very real thing. Very high number of people, knee replacement surgery, 
So I saw the writing on the wall. I was really into the kettlebell. I like kettlebell. Yes, kettlebells work. No, they're not safe. No, the wear and tear over time is not worth it. I went back to using a form of training I had done earlier, and that was like slow, high-tension training, but not using momentum or explosiveness or anything like that. But anyway, I didn't answer your question. So after my camper van days, I started getting called to go around doing seminars. People found out that I established an online presence, established my own website, and people started looking me up. I started traveling so much, I, I just sold the camper van. And I would basically link one seminar in one city to another city to another city. And for a better part of 12 years, 13 years, I was what they call a digital nomad. I started doing online personal training, which I still do to this day. And I would travel basically from place to place, staying for a few weeks here and there, all over the world, all over Europe, Russia, China, Japan, Australia, New Zealand, all over Scandinavia, including Iceland, uh, Mexico, Central America. Canada. I mean, I was everywhere, man. And every couple of weeks, we would just pick up, go to the next seminar. And it was an interesting lifestyle. I liked it. But, you know, even that gets to be a burnout after a while. Yeah. You know, travel can be hard on your body. Flying is very hard on your body, man. Yeah, you're up there in a tube, like in a compressorized tube. Everyone's sneezing and coughing, and you're who knows with all the electronics as you're flying through 600 miles there, an hour? There's electromagnetic field. Yeah, it's, it's hard on your system. So many people get sick after a long airplane ride. It, it's so common for that. So you do the Nomad like for how many years? I did it from about, I guess, 2006 uh, to about just before 2020. Okay. I've taken some some guff. I use an astrology, you know, and people yeah. think. That's pretty crazy, you know? Okay. And, but I tell you, the guy's been really good. And the, the guy was incredibly accurate. And he said, hey, man, you're going to want to get off the road. Something big is going to happen early 2020. Uh, he kept using the word Marshall. He didn't know exactly what it was. He just okay. said there was going to be a worldwide catastrophe. It was going to be really big. And that I would not want to be in a foreign country that I should get back to the U.S. and find a place to hole up. And boy, am I glad I did, man. Wow. When did he tell you that? All the shutdowns and all the crazy stuff happening. When did he tell you to get back to the States? When did this astrologist tell you this? This was at the end of 2019. So you come home. Where do you go? Like when you fly back to the States, where'd you set up? Well, Teresa's parents lived in a little town called Port Townsend, Washington. Okay. And her father had just recently died. And her mother, who was in her mid-80s, was living all by herself. And she felt bad for her mom being by herself on this big five-acre plot of land with this big old house way out in the country. And she wanted to be there for her mom. And plus, it was just a good place to go. But I didn't want to live in the house, her mother's house. So I bought myself a tiny house. And I put the tiny house on the property. And set it up. And I've been living in the tiny house ever since. And then Teresa lives in the main house with her mom, helping her out with things. 
And so I have my own space. How about training? What's it look like these days for you? How much are you teaching? Well, during the company, Washington State was really strict. They shut down all the little BJJ gym, these poor guys. A lot of places went out of business. I was just doing, working out of my own and doing my online training. That's when I started doing Zoom sessions. Mm-hmm. And I discovered that, wow, you can get a lot done in video. I have clients all over the world that I work with via video conferencing. Yep. I give I minister a lot of personal training, and it was really good for me. And then I have a program where I just basically create programming, and then you email. So the, the live session is a little bit more expensive, obviously. And then the email program is more like I tell you what to do. And mm-hmm. once a month, we get together on video. Okay. And that, that worked out very well for me during the whole COVID thing. And a lot of, and of course, you know, I always was interested in, in keeping myself in great physical condition. And I combined breath work and mobility and so forth. And then get back to staying on the mat. Not too many people are on the mat after 60. So what are some common injuries you see in BJJ as you age and maybe ways you can avoid them? What's been what's your experience? What could you share? Well, one of the big things is a lot of guys get back problems, terrible back problems, sciatica, neck, the spine. And a lot of that comes from allowing themselves to be stacked up, like pressure passes, stack mm-hmm. passes, yep. and fighting it. Like you'll get someone in a really good arm walker triangle and you get jacked up on your neck and the guy's trying to stack and make you let go. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, there was that whole uh, inversion thing going on. It still is, where people will do inversions under pressure, mm-hmm. Baron Bolo and this type of stuff. And yes, you can do it when you're young and flexible, but the pressure it puts on your back and spine and the wear and tear, a lot of guys are crippled up man you know like poor hickson his back is pretty messed up he's in pain a lot holding on gracie had terrible back problems i talked to uh, Hiron gracie I'm, I'm pretty good friends with him and i've done some seminars for Hiron at, at the gracie academy Hiron said and i never let myself get stacked up yeah. ever and this is like a, an amazing guy he said yeah. i just let people pass it what do i care he's yeah. not into the whole point because why wouldn't you let someone pass your guard when you're mm-hmm. jacked up in your neck? Oh, you don't want to lose three points. Well, when you get a certain age, screw that. That's stupid, man. Yep. What, you're going to risk your health because you don't want someone to get some kind of imaginary points during training? And young guys don't get this. You know, there's going to be 20, 30-year-old guys, maybe even 40-something, thinking, oh, well, you know, this guy's full of beans. He doesn't know what he's talking about. I'm telling you, I do, man. That wear and tear really racks you up. And, of course, all the joints are pretty savage. Finger. Finger yeah. arthritis. From over-gripping. Yep. You got you to do uh, what they call reverse gripping. One of my favorite exercises, I'll just hold a rubber band and finger and wrist extension. I hold it isometrically for time. That works the opposite muscles are gripping. It kind of balances out the elbow. And working your wrist and fingers and doing mobility drills. Shoulders are a real bugaboo. My own right shoulder got pretty jacked up. That's not just from grappling, but also from kettlebells. Okay. So I do daily hanging to open up the shoulder joint. I recommend all your listeners 
download this little book. You can buy it on Amazon by Dr. John Kirsch called Shoulder Pain, It's Solution and Prevention. I'll put that in the show notes. And nor the guy's exercise. The guy gives exercise advice is bullshit. He doesn't know what he's talking about. But the hanging, the hanging part. Okay. You do daily hangs from a pull-up bar, what they call breaking. Incredible how it heals shoulders. Yeah, I mean, you got to take care of all your joints. Spine in particular. I know a lot of guys with hip replacements, you know, knee replacements. The the leg lock game has been tearing people's ankles and knees oh, up a lot. So. Absolutely. You got to be careful. This is maybe seven, eight years ago. I had my ACL blown out with a knee bar back in the day and uh, took a whole year to come back. Legit, like a whole year, like 10 months. It took a full 10 months and it, it totally changed the way I roll. Like it, that from that point, that's like the pivot point where it's, it's it, like I'm not going with everyone in the room anymore. It just changed the way what I do. Yeah, well, that's the thing. If you want to stay with it, you do have to change your ideas. I mean, look, for me, okay, I'm 70 years old. I enjoy rolling for fun. I like to play trick for trick. I like to play like the mental chess match. Mm. So I'm very careful the way I pick my partners. Okay. But I'm in a position where I'm a six degree black belt. I can pretty much outrank almost everyone in the room usually. And I can just pick and choose and do what I want. Mm-hmm. But you know, to guys that are still just starting out that are maybe in middle age or a little bit older, if you're a blue bout or whatever, purple bout, you, you don't always have that choice. You got to do what your black belt instructor says. So I would recommend those guys talk to their teacher and say, look, I'm in this recreationally. I'm in this for fun. You know, I, I would like to stay with it. And I want to be careful. I don't want to get hurt. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's some guys that are like real pit bulls. They don't seem to know how to go easy. It's like on or off switch okay. with these guys. So some guys you go, hey, let's flow roll next short. And then they're trying to take your head off five seconds later. And they grab you and they throw you on the ground. It's so funny where you could say, oh, yeah, well, let's go relax. But as soon as it goes, they have either on or off. And on is 90 miles an hour. It's like, you know, either zero or 100%. And those guys, they're going to. They're going to be forced to get it someday themselves, you know. Now, okay, look, people that are into competitive jujitsu, ignore everything I'm saying. Go for it. You got to go for it. If you want to be a world champion, you got to go for it. I'm not talking about those guys. Those guys are like about a very small percentage of the guys that take BJJ. Most guys either they're doing it for self defense or recreationally for fun. If you're a competitor, yes, you got to go hard. I'm talking about regular normal guys and that's the majority of most people in most school they're the people that pay the bills they keep the lights on not your competitors those guys never have any fucking money anyway <laughs> <laughs> no seriously it's usually young fit guys and they are not the ones that keep the lights on it's your kids programs mm-hmm. and the adults and parents mm-hmm. they're the ones that keep the lights on and they're the ones you these instructors should be catering to. And there are hardcore guys that believe in go hard or go home or you shouldn't be doing it. I don't agree with that. I think you can still have fun. I think you can flow roll. But even top level champions, like I just saw a video of Gordon Ryan. Yeah. Training. That guy traveled really soft and light. I watched him spar with Hoist. 
very respectful of Hoyce. Hoyce is, he got to be damn near 60 now. And uh, he trained with him really smooth. Uh, I watched him, Gordon Ryan training with a gi on. Uh, it was really nice, smooth, relaxed, very respectful of his partner. So even the top world champions will flow roll. And you don't have to go hard to go home. You don't have to try to destroy everyone you wrestle with. You don't. Getting back to sport, and you're mentioning self-defense. If you were teaching like, at an academy right now, what portion of it would be for competition? And what point would this be? This is to defend yourself out in the street. How would you differentiate the two? And would they be separate classes, the same classes? How would you teach that this day? Gracie Jiu-Jitsu was all-encompassing. There was no such thing as sport, self-defense. It was mm -hmm. all one thing. Everything used technically could be used in a realistic situation. There wasn't that differentiation. But nowadays, with the IFBJJ and the tournament scene, you almost do have to separately train for that as an entity unto itself if, mm -hmm. if you want to go that route. However, I think your ABCs, when you first sign up as a wipeout, should be pretty much self-defense-based, right up through to blue belt. Really do. I do believe that everyone should be exposed. And, you know, usually by the time you're a blue belt, you have a really good handle on how to defend yourself against straight attacks. So from white to blue, you're saying like headlock escapes, a punch defense, punch defense Kick from the ground, defense. kick defense. Yeah, weapon, weapons defenses. Now, there are some schools that specialize. For example, the Valencia brothers, they were the last guys to get their black belts directly from Master Elio Grace. Pedro Valencia's father was a red belt, and his grandfather was a red belt. Yeah, that, that's a long lineage. Those guys are superb, and they teach 100% self-defense-based curriculum. And Hicks and Gracie is still used on self-defense. It's the basis of his curriculum. But that doesn't mean that you can't explore all ranges of BJJ. Mm -hmm. So I personally, I'm teaching out of a judo school. I teach a couple weekly classes, young judo guys. And I teach them how to use their judo throws in a more combative sense, like a street fight without judo rule. You know all the basic throws. Now, how do you use them when a guy's trying to punch your head off? I show them that. And then, you know, I show them all the grabs and headlock escapes and grips, grabs, grab from behind, bear hugs, that type of thing. And then all the things on the ground, like what if the guy gets you down on the ground? What do you do? How do you get out? And here, one of the major criticisms of BJJ is, well, in a real fight, you don't want to go to the ground. Well, that's absolutely true. Don't. However, BJJ prepares you, if you are forced to the ground, how to get back up on your feet real quick. Sure. Yep. If yep. a guy tackles me down or throws me down, I have the elements to get up safely. I also know how to fall. I can be hurled down in concrete, but I know how to protect my joints and my body and not crack my head or hit my elbow or my kneecap. I know how to shield my joints from being bodily thrown down, even on concrete, and how to get back up. And if I do get taken down or if I go to the ground, 
I can extricate myself, use my, my frames, my knee shield, get myself in a position where I can deliver an upkick or a strike, get back to my feet, run away if I can. So the self-defense is quite complete. Say someone came in with no training, right? You had a 20-year-old guy or girl come in and say, hey, here's my first class. What's your perfect first Gracie Jiu-Jitsu class? Orion actually invented that class. It was called the Free Introductory Training Program. And basically it involved with the technical stand-up and base because that movement basically teaches the hip movement used for all the escapes in the ground, the shrimping. And the second one would be front choke. So depending on yourself, not that people go around choking, but it just shows that you're using leverage and not strength and power. Then a headlock is a lapel grab. Because if you ever look at videos of real street fights, there's a lot of guys where they'll grab you to hold you, to punch you with the other hand. Okay. It's very common. You can look at YouTube or Facebook of people recording real fights. It's really common. Maybe I'll teach that. And then on the ground, I'll teach the escape from the map, you know, the trap and roll. Yeah. If there's enough time, maybe headlock escape from the ground. Headlock seemed to be a very common theme in life. So it would be like two stand-up moves and two ground moves. Doing some research, you're really big into breath work and breathing. What can you share on that with training, living in general? There are a lot of different breathing techniques. You have your Wim Hof method. You have your Takeo method. Both are really great, and there's no reason why you can't combine different elements. I became very interested in was Russian martial arts, and I'm interested in the different Russian very martial arts system. They call it Sistema. I studied the Kadashnikov Sistema, and I got real interested in their biomechanical exercises. Based on a lot of their movement on breath work, they have a whole breathing system, and it's loosely based on the Buteyko method. And people can look that up. But it's very good for your health. A lot of people breathe dysfunctionally. They're upper chest breathers. Upper lobes of your lungs are the fight or flight. So they're in chronic stress all the time from the shallow upper chest breathing. If you take a breath in the mirror, and you see any movement in your upper chest, you have dysfunctional upper chest movement. There shouldn't be any movement in the upper chest. You want to breathe in the lower lobes of the lungs. That's like rest and digest calming receptors of the nervous system so you want to breathe nasal in and out through your nose most of the time during heavy exercise of course exhale through your mouth but always breathe through your nose and you want to breathe primarily into the lower lobes of the lungs to keep yourself calm Mm -hmm. now obviously there'll be emergencies where you're going to be breathing into the whole lung but for the most part you want to keep lower lung breathing nasal inhales only when things get really stressful would you exhale through the mouth and then there's a different way for breathing for steady state aerobic work there's a different way of breathing for grappling there's a different way of breathing for strength training different breathing systems for different things is that something you see in the hickson choke documentary sometimes you see hickson with his belly bouncing in and out when he's doing those really he, deep breaths fire or bellows breath it's mm-hmm. a very particular breathing exercise It's usually used to build heat in the body. Okay. The Wim Hof method is basically an ancient form of breathing called tumor breathing. It it was designed to uh, help one tolerate 
extreme cold. The monks living it high in the Himalayas, both the yogi and Tibetan monks would use it, Buddhist monks, they would use this tuma breathing so they could sit comfortably during meditation without getting cold. One question I didn't ask you a couple moments ago about weight training. How many times do you think someone who's 30, 40, 50, 60 should do the anaerobic weight training? Is that two, three times a week, once a week? Say he's a recreational jujitsu person, trains three, four times a week, has a family and wants to stay, wants to use weight training to stay healthy and not get injured. What do you recommend? Once a week. Once a week. Yeah. I have your readers check out Body by Science by Dr. Doug McGuff. Body by Science. And who's the author? It's a very good book. Also, Tim Ferriss. Yeah. For Our Body. No, real good resources. Uh, Real, real good. Basically, if you're recreationally rolling, you are getting a form of resistance training. So, you know, your muscles are getting pretty good work when you're rolling. But once a week, strength training will keep you very strong and healthy. There's a form of training called high-intensity training. It was popularized by Arthur Jones, okay. and then later Mike Mentzer and Dorian Yates. And basically, it's like brief and frequent training. Now, those guys, that's all they did. They were bodybuilders, professional bodybuilders. So they were training every few days, a couple of times a week. But for the most part, you really don't need to train much more than every three to five days. You told a story on London Real, which uh, I thought was so cool, where every year you would go to Brian Rose, you go to London Real on the show, and you would tell them when you're coming back the following year because you're a nomadic, and you would just plan to be in London at that time. And Brian would say you would just roll in, <laughs> roll in right at that time. It's so cool. But one thing you mentioned, like Arnold Schwarzenegger, who was one of the most famous people in the world a couple decades ago, he won Mr. Universe, but the guy he went up against looked Mike just Man- as- yeah, but and like, can you tell about the two training systems they both did? Well, Arnold was bragging about how many hours he was spending the gym. It was like a part-time job, you know? It, if I remember the story correctly, it was like 16, 17 hours a week in the gym. Okay. And Mike was spending like less than 90 minutes. In a, a week in the gym, not a day. You mean yeah. a week? Yeah, a week. Who was Mr. Universe, who was up against... Arnold and Mr. Universe. Yeah, I think it was the NBAA, Mr. Universe. It was a Joe Weider competition, yeah. Okay. And Arnold was sponsored by Joe Weider. Okay. So, <laughs> yeah, there, there was some, uh, a lot of, Mike felt there was a lot of bias in the judging. But you're saying that once a week, if you do the correct workout, like what, pulling, pushing, that kind of stuff, pull-ups, dips? Yeah. Yeah. Doug McGough calls it the big five. I, I use the big six. Basically, horizontal push, horizontal pull, okay. vertical push, vertical pull, like a shoulder press pull-up yep. or military press with dumbbells, or it could be pipe push-ups, chin-ups. If you can't do chin-ups, you can do pull-downs on a lap machine. Okay. Some form of chest press, it could be push-ups, or it could be machine press, uh, dumbbell bench press, barbell bench press, yep. some type of rowing motion, you know, pulling with cables, yep. machines barbell and then some form of squat okay which could be a leg press if you have a bad back and some type of lower back or hinge which could be back extension it could be a a straight leg deadlift okay and then that would be your base and then i would fill in the gap i would work my fingers wrist and forearms okay my grip you know i work my neck using isometric definitely want to work your neck 
Yeah. I would work my shins and my calves. A lot of people don't work their shins. How do you work your shins? You flex your toes towards your knee. There are actually some machines made for tibial dorsiflexion. Okay. You don't need a machine. You can do it isometrically. And you can throw an abdominal exercise. Okay. How about like curls, like bicep? Is that covered with the other stuff? Like where, where would curls Yeah, I mean, your arms are getting a pretty good workout. Uh, if you're doing two, a push and a push, your triceps are getting hammered pretty good. Okay. Like if you're doing a pull yep. and a pull, your biceps are getting worked really hard. You don't need to do every single muscle function. However, you know, every now and again, you can change it up a little bit and add like a, what they call a simple exercise in there, like a curl or a lateral raise. If you have shoulder problems, for example, yeah. and overhead pressing is painful, you can substitute a lateral raise and a shrug. I have difficulty with overhead pressing, so I got to be careful. Sometimes I'll do isometric lateral raises. First off, thank you for that. That is awesome. How about last part? We spoke about the weight training. We spoke about the breathing. Last thing, diet regarding health. Any diet tips or what's your diet look like these days? Any do's and don'ts? Well, for one thing for sure, we know that fast food is horrible for you. Fast food meaning from these franchise restaurants, almost anything in these type of restaurants, very unhealthy. Seed oils. Seed oil. I've heard some health practitioners say that, you know, like canola oil and all the uh, oils made from vegetable matter are worse than smoking cigarettes. Really? For what they do to your body. And processed food of any type. Yep. Try to avoid it. Lots of vegetables. A lot of vegetables. Do you follow the Gracie and, diet? Uh, no, hell no. I don't think it's good for you at all. I think they may they make a big mistake with that. They miss the marks. Mm -hmm. But listen, if a person is overweight, and that's most of America now, unfortunately, I mean, huge portion of our population is either obese or just over fat. Yeah, all diets do work one way and one way only. That's the caloric deficit, and exercise is a very poor way to burn fat. Don't burn that many calories. If you go out there slamming yourself on the spinning spin class or treadmill or running, you just make yourself ravenously hungry. I knew this decades ago. We used to do a fat to muscle makeover at Maxercise and we were very successful. People lost a lot of body fat. And it didn't involve any cardio at all. Really? Other than just daily walking. It involved two weekly strength training and a strict supervised diet in which they would report with their diet log for a review, regular weigh-ins, regular measurement with girth measurements with a tape, and percent body fat measurements with skin full calipers. And we were really successful. The most success we had was no cardio. This idea that cardio burns all these calories, it doesn't. It's a pitiful small amount of calories. It's not worth your time. Really? For heart health, if you're going out and moving your body every day, it doesn't have to be more than just a nice walk. And strength training increases heart strength through cardioperfusion and ejection fraction and stroke volume. Your heart works not that the heart rate is elevated, but each beat is much stronger because your heart is a muscle like any other muscle. 
This flies in the face of convention, but I'd recommend that people go online and look at uh, Dr. Doug McGuff, Drew Bay, Jay Vincent. Okay. And look what they're saying. I'll put them in the show notes. A lot of people are pretty limited in their time. A lot of people are very busy. Yeah. And a lot of people feel like they just don't have time to go out there and do an hour of cardio every day. And they feel defeated, so they just give up. You don't need it. If you're strength training and like a couple times a week, and you're not doing it for calorie loss, what you're doing strength training for is to prevent muscle loss during your diet. At the University of Penn, they did a landmark study. They found that you can lose as much fat simply dieting as you can exercise and dieting. The problem is if you diet without the strength training, you lose muscle. Okay. And your metabolism will really slow down. So you need the strength training to keep your muscle and strict dieting. And you got to record your calories. Okay. And make the predominance of your foods fresh, wholesome, organic foods. Don't be afraid of meat. Meat, eggs, fish, cheese, chicken. You don't need to go vegan. Protein powders and all other stuff is pretty devitalized. And a lot of it is full of all sorts of toxins. They don't need fancy stuff. You can just buy in a regular grocery store if you know what you're looking for. So just to recap real quick, you're basically saying eat fresh food, fruits, vegetables. No need to spend all that time doing cardio. Strength training once, maybe twice a week max. You're saying once is fine. Watch your diet and keep track of your calories. And uh, you should be in a pretty good spot there. Yep. That's Every awesome. year, I travel to a place called Ikaria. I, I do like a life, a jiu-jitsu lifestyle training camp there on this little island. Is that it's Greece? One, is that in Greece? Yes. Okay. It is one of the, have you ever heard of the Blue Zones? Yeah, yeah, sure, yeah. Well, it's a Blue Zone. And a huge portion of its population lived to over 90. And many, they have many centenarians, people that live over 100. And Ikaria, Greece, uh, Sardinia, Okinawa, uh, Village of Bamba, Ecuador, Loma Linda, California. There's a couple other places. And these people have extraordinary long lives. And one thing they have all in common is they eat light. They're active, but they don't do cardio like we do. They yeah. don't go running marathons and going to spin classes and all this nonsense. Yeah. And they are very active. They don't lift weights. Many have active lifestyles. I personally believe that weight training, if done properly, can increase lifespan and keep your joints and muscles healthy into old age. But it has to be done correctly. We're not talking about power cleans, Olympic lifting. We're yeah. not talking about CrossFit. You don't see these the oldest people in the world doing this kind of stuff. So there's a lot to be gleaned from the lifestyles. No doubt. I appreciate that. Wrapping up here, to be respectful of your time, Steve. Why don't you just transfer real quick to a part of the interview we call Share Your Secrets so our listeners can learn just a little bit more about you as a person. Most high achievers like yourself have like a daily routine, either how they start their day or how they end their day. What's your morning or nighttime routine look like? Well, I've made my health a priority. I've made my health my priority even over making money or material wealth. Of course, we all need money. <laughs> I need money too. I have a whole morning routine in bed before I even get up. A lot of Qigong, Chinese, 
type exercises, pressure point, spinal twists, hand and foot reflexology, uh, stomach massage. And then I do what they call dowsing, cold water dowsing year round with a five gallon bucket outside. Wow. It's quite cool here. It'll be like in the <laughs> 20s, 30s. And I pour this water slowly over my body and Whoa. get myself fingers rubbed down. But I build up to it over the years, you know. And I do that morning and night before bed. Wow. And then I come in and warm back up with uh, more Shikong. Okay. Then, of course, I go to BJJ. And I do a lot of the classic mobility drills on the mat with my students. And a lot of times, even when I do Zoom sessions, I'll I'll stretch out my hamstrings, my hips, my hip rotators, piriformis stretch. Mm -hmm. I strength train once a week, sometimes twice a week. Three, four days in between each workout. You have three, four days in between each workout. It just depends how how much I'm getting on the mat. Okay. I do want to do a quick plug for your BJJ mobility drills during COVID. We're stuck in the house and I saw you put online, you were selling your, I think you're in Phoenix and you recorded all these BJJ warm-up drills, the mobility drills. They are money. Oh my gosh. I've been using them for about a year, year and a half. And that program you have, I'll link that in the show notes. It's fantastic. Thanks. Yeah. Give me 15 minutes and I'll add 15 years. <laughs> yeah. That's right. Yeah. Give me 15 minutes. I'll add 15 years. And it's, and it's phenomenal. It, it, your back moves and ways. And they're very get. simple. Even beginners can do them. Even if your ass is still, you know, I use them all the time. And even if you can't get on the mat that day, if you do that for 15, 20 minutes, you feel like you almost went to jujitsu. Does that make sense? Like when you do those Yeah. Drills. If you do them right and you combine them, you can put them in a flow. Yeah. You do one rep of each one and go from move to move. You yeah. can get a nice little workout. Yeah, my body feels like I did something that day. So it's really cool. So thanks for putting that out. I know you're a real big reader and you do a lot of research. Do you have a favorite book, maybe a book that impacted your life or changed your mind more than any other book? Well, As a Man Thinker by James Allen was one of the first oh, books on mental science. Yep. I would recommend anything by Neville Goddard. He was a great guy. Uh, also, jo- John Randolph Price okay. wrote some fantastic books. That As a Man yeah. Thinketh is so good. Oh my gosh, that's so money, that book. Yeah, that, that was the first one that I read as a young man that influenced me forever. Once I understood the power of the subconscious mind mm-hmm. and how it affects how all your life circumstances are basically created through your subconscious, started really thinking about what I say and really monitoring my thoughts. Can't control your thoughts, but you can certainly monitor your thoughts. I heard you once said that there are no mistakes in the universe. The universe operates with like mathematical precision. Could you speak to that a little I bit? Believe, I truly believe that. I don't believe in luck or any of that kind of stuff. I, I really don't. I think that we create our, our own world through our own filters. And we were experiencing it, it started out as a thought. Somehow you think things into existence. It's almost life is like a dream. That little children's song, about life is but a dream. It really is that way. And you can control that dream. You can steer the dream. How about as you look forward to the year ahead, what's the most exciting project you're working on now? I'm working on doing another jiu-jitsu training camp in Greece this spring. I love going there. And I may be doing a strength training seminar on super slow and time static contraction down in Palmetto Bluff, South Carolina. Small little things like that. I've been thinking about writing a book. 
Yeah. Biographical on bringing jujitsu to the East Coast. I think people might find that. You know, my friend Richard Bressler wrote that fantastic book, War Pending. Absolutely. What a great book. I was there for all of that, man. I was there for all that. You know, the, the, I was an investor in the first UFC, man. That's right. Richard was a guest on the show a few months back. Your name came up. I love, a bunch I love of, it. Yeah. I love it. Well, I have an interesting story from the East Coast. That, that was West Coast. On, on how Jiu-Jitsu came in. And, uh, Go do it, so. man. Write that book. That would be fantastic. A couple fun wrap-up questions just to tie this up. First off, I really appreciate your time. So much fun. How about, Steve, if everyone listening could just take one lesson away from everything we discussed, what would that lesson be? Oh, boy, that's a big one because we discussed it a, a lot. lot. <laughs> Maybe a couple of takeaways. Well, breathe talks about fats, proteins, carbohydrates. Everyone forgets about oxygen. If you just learn to breathe in the lower lobes of your lungs, you'd improve your health dramatically. You know, we didn't talk about rest and sleep, but most people do not sleep enough. You cannot gain muscle, you cannot recover from workouts, and you cannot lose fat if you are sleep deprived. Okay. Absolutely not. How many hours do you think the average person needs for sleep? Well, a lot of people have been sleep deprived so long, they probably could stand between 8 to 10 every night, maybe even with a nap. I mean, people are exhausted. We're surrounded by all sorts of pollution and toxins in our environment and in our foods. People are just bombarded with exhausting things all day long. We probably even need more sleep. Yeah. And I heard you mention doing some research for this. You mentioned somehow the benefits of taping your mouth shut when you sleep. Can you talk about that? Yeah, a lot of people inadvertently will go to the mouth because of dysfunctional breathing over a lifetime. When you put a little piece of tape over your mouth, you're forced to breathe nasally, obviously. And you'll get much, much better sleep. There are membranes in your nose that produce nitric oxide, which opens up the blood vessels and allows the, the oxygen to get to your cells more efficiently. If you start breathing through the mouth, you lose the benefit of the nitric oxide. Really? So what type of tape would you use? Just medical tape. When I, I don't like to shave that often. Sometimes I'll put a piece of duct tape, but my skin's tough. No, no, I didn't. I, I don't know. I don't have delicate skin. Not everyone could do that, but I, I do. A situation. <laughs> it's just a little square. All right. Just to you know, keep the mouth shut. And then you keep the mouth shut, you will sleep better. You'll get a better night's sleep. It's been proven. I'm going to try that. I'm going to try that. I need more sleep. I'm getting up too early, going to bed too late with my kids. And I, I sleep is something like if you don't get that right, the rest of the stuff falls apart, right? Well, I have your readers check out this book called The Oxygen Advantage. Okay. The Oxygen Advantage. Okay. Yeah. By uh, Patrick McKeown. Patrick McKeown. Okay. I will put that in the notes. Thank you for all these great recommendations. How about if you had someone out there that maybe is a little bit out of shape, but they maybe want to try jujitsu for the first time, but hey, I'm 30, I'm 35, I'm not in great shape, I'm a little scared to step on the mat. What would you tell them? Well, Check out all the local schools. Ask three questions. Do you have a children's program? How many women do you have in your school? How many guys over 50 or 40, whatever demographic, over 50 is usually good? If the answer is no kids program, no women, or one woman or two women, 
uh, one guy over 50. That's probably a dog-eat-dog school. Not always, but there's a good chance that there's a good reason why those demographics are not going. It's probably mm-hmm. too rough, too competitive-oriented. Okay. A fourth question might be, do you have a self-defense program based mm-hmm. on self-defense? Usually, if they say if they're affirmative, yeah, we have 20 women. We have like at least a dozen guys over 50. Yeah, we have a children's program every day after school. Yes, we start out with self-defense. Man, that's probably a pretty damn good school. Thanks for sharing that. And then take a take a, a class, you know? Yep. If they have free trial, take it. Yep. Then take and see if you like the Because they could say yes to all those things, but maybe you don't like the instructor. Last two questions wrapping up. Steve, if you could spend the day with any historical figure, alive or dead, who would you spend the day with? Wow. That's a double. Maybe Jesus Christ? Yeah. What would you do with Jesus? You guys who would hang, what would you guys do? I would just like to be in his presence and just listen to him. Anything he had to say would be unbelievable, wouldn't it? That would be pretty cool. You could show him how to break across side control or something. You could- <laughs> You can teach him how to break the guard. That's really cool. Jesus Christ. That's a, I think you're the first person to say that in 70 episodes. That's so cool. Last question. Steve Maxwell, if you had to get a quote or a saying tattooed on your body, what would that quote or motto say? I, wouldn't do it. I don't believe in tattoos. I don't like I, I don't I, I, I don't have anything against people to get tattoos. I just wouldn't do it. Never. Never. That is fantastic. You're the first guest. You have no tattoos and wouldn't get any. Yeah. I don't see any reason to, you know, I was given this marvelous machine, this wonderful, amazing body, and I don't see any reason to alter it or change it or anything. God bless the people that like body art. It's just not for me. That's all. That's perfect. No, I appreciate that. With Steve Maxwell. First off, I would like to thank you joining us today. It is such an honor to have you on the show. I would like to thank you for introducing me to jujitsu back in the 90s at 7th and Chestnut Street at Maxercise. You started the journey. I appreciate you having the courage to uh, open up the first BJJ school on the East Coast and introduce so many of us to the art. I don't think a whole bunch of us would be here without you. Thank you for your diet tips and exercise. I learned something every time I hear you on a podcast or see something on the internet on you. I appreciate you, man. Thank you very much. And if people are looking for you and what you do online, where can we find you? I have a website, maxwellsc.com. Maxwellsc.com. Yeah. Yeah. And they can find find me online. And I sell all sorts of votable videotapes, a little ebook on isometrics, and just contact information on there if, if anyone wants to contact me for any kind of workshop or seminar. Awesome. I, I will put that in the show notes front and center, and I highly recommend Steve Maxwell's BJJ Mobility Drills. They, that's fantastic. So sorry I missed you when you floated through balance at the end of the summer. I was out of town, and I was yeah, so bummed I couldn't I'll, make that. I'll have to see if I can't uh, make a return trip. Well, dude, if you come back to Philly, that would be awesome. But Steve, thank you so much. And awesome to speak with you. Appreciate your time. We'll be talking again soon, Joe.
Hey, it's Joe Chicarone. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the episode. If you could, please leave us a five-star review. It goes a long way with connecting the podcast with more listeners. So if you could, I would really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Talk soon.